Welcome to Naomi's Table, a Bible study podcast for women. I'm your host, Amy Spreeman. Check out all the Bible studies at Naomi'sTable.com. Now here's teacher Beth Seifert with today's lesson in 2 Corinthians. So pull up a chair, open your Bibles, and let's begin. Welcome back to our study in the book of 2 Corinthians, ladies. Today we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 4. I've titled this lesson, Sinful Pride and Righteous Humility. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to 2 Corinthians, starting in chapter 1, verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I caused you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So one interesting thing about this letter is that Paul often uses what I learned as the royal we to describe himself. So when we see Paul saying our and we in this letter, it's a formal way of speaking. He's not always referring to more than one person when he uses this. Keep that in mind as we go through this letter because there are times where it may seem like Paul is referencing events or things that happen to more than one person when in reality he's actually only talking about himself. We see Paul is defending himself here, and rightly so. If you'll recall, when we went through 1 Corinthians, we saw that Paul's defense of himself is necessary as it ties to the gospel. 
as Paul was called directly by Christ on that road to Damascus to be an apostle as one untimely born, Paul's character and message are unavoidably tied to Christ. So if someone attacks Paul's character and message, they are attacking the message that Christ gave to Paul. Thus, he does have to defend himself in order to uphold the truth of the gospel of Christ. So Paul's conscience is clear. He behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Paul wasn't trying to impress people with earthly wisdom, but his method of engagement is to engage by the grace of God. And to an even greater extent than normal, that's how Paul engaged with the believers in Corinth. So again, a reminder of 1 Corinthians. Paul spends a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 2 contrasting the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. The wisdom of the world is folly to God, and likewise the world sees the wisdom of God and scoffs at it. So Paul is still here, making sure that this distinction is still in place. His interaction with these people was not designed off of what the world values, but his goal and intention is to honor God in the simplicity and the true godly sincerity of his true message. The people of Corinth valued worldly religion. These believers really struggled with discerning the difference between divine or godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. Again, we saw that over and over in 1 Corinthians, how the Corinthians' values were confused and mixed up. Because Paul knows their tendency to sin in following after the world in this way, he is careful not to plead with them or behave toward them in a way that would elevate worldly wisdom. His goal was to point them back to Christ, to the cross, to the true and saving gospel, not to draw attention to himself as the messenger and his ability to deliver the message or his appearance or status in any other way. Paul was careful to write to them what was fully in line with what he had said to them in person, hoping they would fully understand now. He isn't trying to manipulate them with a hidden agenda or motive. Now, he's straightforward in what he says and what he writes. Paul acknowledges that they did understand in part before, but their lack of full understanding is holding back their growth in Christ, and it's also leading them to stray back to the worldly view of religion that they had held. His goal for them is that when Christ returns, the people of Corinth will boast in Paul and in the message of salvation that he brought. Paul doesn't want accolades for himself per se. He wants these people to understand who is truly for them and who's out to fleece them. Again, we have to glance back at 1 Corinthians and be reminded that there were people among the believers in Corinth who were putting themselves forward as super apostles. They were demeaning Paul and the saving gospel that he taught, and they were demanding praise and money from the people as they sought to elevate themselves. The Corinthians, sadly, were taken in by these people very easily, and they boasted of those super apostles. Their allegiance to a particular person instead of to the gospel has already caused horrible divisions among the church in Corinth. So Paul's desire isn't that he himself might be elevated, but that they might see and fully understand the truth of the gospel that he brought to them, and that because of that, they might value him and the true gospel instead of valuing those false teachers. And Paul, as their teacher, as the messenger sent forth to bring them the good news, does want to be able to boast in them as well. He wants to be able to present them to Christ on that day as those who have been brought from death to life. He wants to be able to put them forth to Christ and be able to say truthfully, 
my Savior, these are yours as well. They have struggled, but they have learned and they love you, and they have grown in the grace and knowledge of you more deeply. Paul wanted to offer grace to these believers. He knew, in a not prideful way, that his visits do impart God's grace to the churches, as God sends him as his messenger of the gospel. In the past, because of their sinful pride that led to divisions, factions, drunkenness in the gathering, and other shameful sins, as they would boast of their freedom in Christ, Paul has had to be super harsh with them. Their sins were a big deal, and their pride was the root of it all, leading them astray in various ways. Paul wants them to know that although it was necessary that he speak in such harsh ways toward them for their repentance and reconciliation, that he does truly love them and wants what's best for them. He wanted to visit them on the way to and from Macedonia and have them send him on his way to Judea. His desire to do this didn't happen, and that was under God's sovereign control. Paul wasn't vacillating, as it says in the ESV, or as it says in the HCSB, the Holman Christian Standard, being irresponsible in expressing that intention, even though it didn't come about. He wasn't lying. He wasn't being double-tongued. He truly did intend to visit those times, but that didn't come to pass. Paul wasn't being wishy-washy or hypocritical, saying one thing and doing the opposite. So again, Paul is defending himself here, and we see immediately why this matters. Paul points to Jesus. Just as Jesus is unchangeable, so too Paul did not present a Christ to them as changeable. All of the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament promises of God to his people, and all of our confidence in God's promises must come from our trust in Christ. Knowing this, Paul is careful not to make promises that he can't keep, but he still does make plans, trusting that God will direct and guide his path, even if that means Paul's plans are laid aside. Paul is not untrustworthy in this. To suggest that he is throws doubt on his character, and again, it undermines the trustworthiness of the gospel that he shares. Paul's use of Jesus' full title in verse 19 lets us know how serious this is. The Son of God, Jesus, the Christ, his person and work were under attack by the false teachers in Corinth, yet the proof of his truthfulness was in the truthful gospel that Paul preached. The Son of God, God in the flesh, is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. And God appointed Paul to bring God's gospel of salvation. Paul and his message are trustworthy. God put his seal on both Paul and all believers, and he has given all believers, Paul included, the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of the promises that are yet to be fulfilled. This passage also contains one of those little treasures that we can so easily miss. We can see in verses 21 through 22 the roles of each person of the Trinity in salvation. God establishes us to persevere in Christ. He put his seal on us once indicating we are His by giving us the Holy Spirit in our lives. So God establishes us, we are established and united in Christ, and the work of God in our lives is something we can trust as we've been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment of the eternity we have been promised with Him. Paul now does something that he doesn't do lightly. To call God as a witness was a big deal. Basically, in saying this, he's saying, I call on God to take my life from me if I'm not telling the truth here. 
Paul's decision not to go to Corinth was made out of a desire to spare these believers more heartache. This wasn't out of condescension towards them, but out of true concern for their growth and restoration. He wasn't trying to elevate himself and to squish these believers, but to come alongside them, to work with them, and to help them to stand firm in their faith and to do so with joy. Paul reminds them of the visit that he did make to to them, the visit that occurred after the writing of the first letter that did cause them pain. His desire was not to repeat that immediately, but to give time for the Holy Spirit to convict and correct the people. Paul had already written a hard letter, visited and had a rough visit, and he knew that these things were hard and hurtful for these believers, although they were also necessary. He's not trying to beat them into submission, but to come alongside them, to point them to truth, and to let that truth take hold and let the Spirit do His work in their lives. He truly loves these believers and doesn't want to inflict unnecessary harm on them. Ladies, when someone is under attack, being called a false teacher, we need to understand why this is important. If that person is truly preaching a false gospel, they're teaching a gospel that has no power to save. They are undermining the true gospel of Christ, and they are leading others away from the truth. If that person is actually preaching a true and saving gospel, then those who are attacking that person are attacking the true gospel. So that's why we have to know for ourselves what the gospel actually says. We have to know what the gospel actually is so we can recognize when someone is either sharing a false or an incomplete gospel or when someone is sharing the truth. So Bible 101 today, ladies, we all need to remind ourselves of what the gospel is pretty much daily. So since we're talking about it here, here's our review for today. God is holy not just better or different than we are, but so holy that he cannot even abide sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, Adam's sin was passed on to all of humanity. Adam was our representative, and he wasn't a good one. Through his sin, sin and death entered the world. This is a huge problem because now we are no longer at peace with the God who created us. In fact, we are in full-on rebellion, and we are God's enemies. But God being rich in mercy, promised to send the Messiah, a way to reconcile his people back to him. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the faith of those Old Testament saints as they waited for the Messiah to come. Their faith was in the Messiah. When the time was perfect, God sent his son, Jesus, who took on flesh and who identified with us in every way, but without sinning. Just as Adam was tempted and fell, Jesus was tempted and did not fall. And God looked on Jesus and counted our sin to him. The sins of all those who trusted in the Messiah or who would trust in the Messiah were put on Christ. He literally bore the wrath of God in our place, took the punishment that you deserve for sin, and paid for your punishment with his life and death on the cross. God calls all men to repent of their sin, to agree with God that they are wrong, that they are sinners, and to call sin what it is and cry out to God to save them. When we call out to him to save us, when we truly repent, we are reconciled to God. God counts the righteousness of his Son as ours. We still aren't righteous in ourselves, but when God looks at us, he sees his Son. In this way, he is both just as justice is served, and he is the one who justifies us through his Son. Outside of Christ, there is no way to the Father. And we'll see that beautiful truth summed up when we get to chapter 5, verse 21, where God's word says that God made him, meaning Jesus, 
who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might be called the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin for us. That's how big a deal our sin is. God in the flesh had to die on our behalf because we couldn't pay the debt we owed. And he paid it in full and was raised on the third day as if to say that the check cleared, showing that God accepted the payment of his son on our behalf. Ladies, sin is a big deal. We must confess and repent to be made right with God. We must submit our lives to our Savior and deny our very flesh as we work with his Spirit to live lives that are pleasing to him as we realize what he has saved us from. Any gospel that fails to call sinners to repent, any gospel that sugarcoats the seriousness of our sin, and any gospel that suggests that we can, on our own merit, earn any part of our salvation, is a false gospel. The benefits of this gospel are life with God, eternal life with God in heaven, and the sanctifying work of God's Spirit in our lives today and every day. There are no promises of wealth and prosperity in this world in the true gospel. Rather, we see the magnitude of the debt we owed to our Creator. We feel the crushing despair as we realize we couldn't pay that debt. And then we feel the soul-lifting joy as we realize that our debt is paid and we are grateful. It is by grace that we are saved. And He is gracious, ladies. So, Paul writes this letter to encourage these believers to point them again back to the true gospel and to remind them that his desire for them is for them to love God and serve him. He defends himself only as far as is necessary to support the authenticity of the gospel he preaches. His pride isn't at the root of this. His concern for the gospel is. Their unwarranted criticism of his actions shows their lack of understanding of Paul's purpose in sharing this gospel with them. Ladies, we can be so quick to defend ourselves out of concern for our own reputations, but how are we doing at defending the truth of the gospel? We must be careful when we are defending the truth of Scripture to be gracious and compassionate, but we must hold fast to the truth at the same time. Far too often we either pull back completely when God and His Word are attacked, or we jump into the fray in a manner that is simply shameful. We may even be right But the manner in which we defend God's word brings shame upon the message we want to proclaim. So, ladies, my question for us today is this. How are we defending ourselves? Out of pride? What slights and insults against us do we jump to to defend? What is our response when the truth of God is attacked? Do we immediately back down? Do we jump in to win the argument? Or do we stand firmly rooted in the hope we profess pointing with clarity and with grace to those truths? May we consider today how we are bearing witness for the gospel in our own lives, and may we stand firm in our faith, sharing the truth with love and grace, but sharing the truth, even when it is hard. Ladies, you'll find the notes for this study under the Bible Studies tab of the website, naomistable.com, Day 2, Sinful Pride and Righteous Humility.